Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Kevin Hayes, author of George Washington, A Life in Books. Kevin Hayes, author of George Washington, A Life in Books. Why did you write the book? Well, one of my specialties is the early American book culture and the intellectual life of uh, people in America, in colonial America. And I had done an earlier book uh, about Thomas Jefferson called The Road to Monticello. And that was all about uh, Jefferson's uh, books and, and reading and intellectual life. And uh, after I finished that book, I started searching on for a new project. And I mean, there's, there's lots of people to write about. Uh, and I started looking at all the different uh, members of the Continental Congress, and then suddenly it occurred to me, well, no one's ever done this about George Washington. Uh, and it seems, it seems such an obvious thing, uh, but it's like uh, people have, you know, a lot of George Washington scholars would say, well, he wasn't an intellectual, he didn't read. And uh, I thought I'd try and challenge that association and see if I could prove that he did read, and, and he did have a good library, and he learned a lot from his books, and that they helped to shape uh, the direction his uh, career and his life took. Did you know how much of a reader he was before you started? Because people usually think of Thomas Jefferson mm -hmm. in books, but not George Washington. Um, not really too much. I mean, I knew I'd read his library catalog, which uh, lists over a thousand volumes in his library, and so that would seem to indicate uh, that uh, he he was a reader. But you know, other people said, well, he was just a shelf filler. I mean, he just used books as furniture, and uh, and so um, that's basically the what I knew when I first started out. And so I, I thought I would see and, uh, if I could find evidence that he was a reader. And so I started looking through some of his surviving books. Now, his books survived in different libraries uh, around the country. And the biggest concentration of them survived at the Boston Athenaeum. And the reason why uh, they survived there is because uh, in the 19th century, when um, George Washington's books were going up for sale, uh, there was a, a book dealer who was going to sell them to the British Museum, and uh, Americans just got, <laughs> what? We're going to sell George Washington's book to his former enemy? We can't do that. And, and so uh, they put together a subscription fund in Boston to, to buy the books, and so they bought the books, and then they put them in the Boston Athenaeum, uh, and this was 1840s when they did this, and they're, they're still there today. And so they have about 400 or so uh, volumes of, of, from George Washington's library, so it's the largest concentration of his books. And so I went up there and I spent a month in Boston and doing some uh, grunt work, really. I mean, just because what you got to do is just you pull down a book and you got to look at every page and see if you can find evidence that George Washington read those books. Because he didn't write about books very much and he didn't have a lot of marginalia like John Adams. Would. John Adams wrote his books all the time. But Washington was a perfectionist and he would make corrections. When he, when he saw a typo, he would correct it. And, uh, you know, I started seeing more and more evidence of these typos, and 
uh, you know, after I looked at enough books and started to recognize his, his handwriting and recognize his characteristic uh, corrections of mistakes, then I could see that, you know, when he's making one correction on page 100 and another correction on page 200 and another correction on page 300, that shows to me that he was working through that book pretty carefully. What kind of books? Well, one of the, my favorite ones that's in the Boston Athenaeum collection is uh, a book of Daniel Defoe's Travels Through Great Britain. And this is one that I did find some Washington uh, typographical corrections in them, but he also made a few other notes in them. Now, Washington did not write very much in his notes beyond the corrections, but in a couple places he made note of um, a couple other books that he had read. He, he referenced uh, Bernard Mandible's Fable of the Bees in, on one page, and he referenced an, another uh, Paul Ripon de, uh, de Thoris's History of England. Uh, which was a very influential history of England, which Jefferson and Adams uh, and other founding fathers read, but Washington read it too. He, no, he didn't have a copy in his library, but the fact that he made reference to it in his copy of Defoe is an indication that he did read it. He borrowed it from someone, uh, and that's something that has really escaped the, the written record, that the personal borrowing from one uh, person in, in colonial Virginia to another, and it, this, it went on all the time, but we, there's not much evidence of that. So you're allowed to go to the library and say, can I look at George Washington's books? And you're allowed to touch them and open them? Yeah. Now, they're very careful about that. You, <laughs> not just you know, you have, to, you have to apply for it. And uh, happily, they gave me a fellowship to, to do research mm -hmm. there. And, uh, but, you know, you, you, you fill out a, you know, there's no open stacks. You don't just walk up and start <laughs> pulling down books. Um, but, you know, you fill in a call, a call slip and then they, they bring it to you very carefully and then they, they give you a little uh, stand to, to put the rare books on and because these are all leather-bound books and the leather is always kind of uh, dried out and um, very fragile. But, yeah, once, uh, once you get the books, then they let you touch them. And, and the paper, uh, you know, the, the bindings are, are kind of fragile, but the paper is much better quality because it was all cotton content. I mean, you look at a book from... Uh, 1780, and it's in a lot better shape than a book from 1880, because 1880, what I call is the era of bad paper, and the paper was made from wood pulp, whereas in 1780, it was all made 100% cotton content. So much better quality paper-wise than the books were back then. So what's it like to read a book that might not have been open for uh, 100 years? Well, it's, um, I've read a lot of books that haven't been open for 100 years, but to read a book that George Washington read is, I mean, it gives, it gives you goosebumps. I'm getting goosebumps now just talking about it. I mean, so it's, it's so exciting. And, you know, this is an experience I've had in my other, um, other research on other founding fathers. Uh, there was one book at the Library of Congress that was uh, owned by Benjamin Franklin, and Thomas Jefferson bought it. And so here we have a, a double provenance, uh, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. And, and, you know, that's something that's really exciting. Uh, and in Washington's books, to, you know, to pick up Washington's copy of the Constitution. Uh, and um, you know, there's, <laughs> there's some, that's an important thing. And uh, something that is, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to see a tangible object of, you know, because we think of, you know, the founding fathers and all these great ideas about liberty and governing that they had. And, you know, when you see them written down in a book, in a book that was, was read and circulated at that time, it really adds more meaning to it. So did you come away from this with a different impression of George Washington than you started? Oh, very much so. I mean, I, it, my, my working thesis was uh, let's, let's set out and see if we can prove that Washington was a reader and he did learn from his books. And 
Uh, I found enough books with enough of his marks on it and enough other evidence in his diaries and, and his notebooks and uh, his correspondence that indicates to me that he really was, uh, was a reader and, and learned very much from his books. What were books like in the 1700s? I mean, were there bookstores? I mean, how would you get one, and how, were they expensive? Well, for people in colonial Virginia, um, most of the books came from uh, London. Now, uh, that's, I mean, that's good and bad. I mean, good London, London had, had great, uh, there's a lot of great literature and great books that were being published in London. Uh, but it took a long time to get here, and often, too, the London uh, booksellers uh, would, would foist off old editions uh, on their colonial customers, knowing full well that, that a colonial customer is not going to take the trouble to send a book back to London <laughs> for a refund and then wait to get it back again. Uh, and Washington complained about this in his, in his letters to his uh, London agent because he had ordered a, a copy of Humphrey Bland's military manual, which was one of the standard military manuals of the time period. And at this time, there was a sixth edition out, and the, the bookseller sent him the second edition. And so Washington was a little ticked off about that. <laughs> was, was he in a family of readers when he grew up? His, his father and his uh, older brothers were, were well-read, and they, they had a good education. He, uh, his two older brothers were sent to uh, uh, England for their education. And George Washington would have been sent to England uh, for an education, but his father died. Uh, before he reached the, the age to go to school, and so uh, George Washington's mother wanted to keep, understandably, wanted to keep him uh, close to the home, and so he was educated in Virginia. So he didn't have nearly as good an education as his brothers did. Uh, and it's something that he always regretted. Uh, George Washington always, I mean, it's, it's strange to think about this. We think about George Washington, the great man, the, the man who could bend people to his will, but yet, Washington was very self-conscious about the, the gaps in his education. And I mean, when you're hanging out with Thomas Jefferson and John Adams <laughs> and Benjamin Franklin, it's understandable that you might feel a little self-conscious about your, uh, your lack of uh, reading. Did those guys ever think of George Washington as kind of an intellectual lightweight? Adams did. Adams uh, looked down his nose at Washington and uh, made some, some comments about that. Uh, now, again, Washington did not wear his learning on his sleeve, though. I mean, he didn't uh, boast about it or, or, or drop quotations from literature <laughs> every chance he could. And so even the, the what learning he did have, he didn't, uh, didn't make it obvious. What level of education did he have? You know, Washington's education is one of the most mysterious periods in his uh, lifetime. We don't really know very much about it. Now, there's an indication that he went to school for, uh, for a time period, and then he... Uh, had a domestic tutor, which was a live-in tutor, who uh, you know, lived in your home and, and, and taught, uh, taught this, the student. Now, the biggest indication is his school notebooks that survive. And those show that he, was, he kept uh, studying until he was about 16 or so. Um, and, and so he had a basic, uh, a good education in, in general subjects, and, uh, but he never had a classical education that was common uh, to Jefferson and Adams and others at never the time period. never learned to read Latin or Greek no. like uh, some of them other guys? No. I mean, he, he could pick up a few words in Latin, but that was about it. He never had a Latin education. So what textbooks, what kind of textbooks did he have? Well, some of his textbooks survived. I mean, he had, well, probably the surveying handbook was one of the most important ones because that was his, his first career as a surveyor. And there's also... Um, nav navigational textbooks. I mean, he had uh, and uh, mathematical books. 
Um, and so those, those I know that survive. Now there's one, I remember the navigational book especially because uh, there was, the, the author was figuring out some calculations about uh, latitude and, and uh, the, where the sun's position was and the author made it a mathematical error and Washington caught it. And you know, so this, this goes beyond just catching a typo when you're reading. I mean, to, to actually question the author's <laughs> calculations and recalculate it yourself and, and recognize the author made a mistake. I mean, that, that's a higher level of, of correcting errors than just correcting typos. I have to read the title of, uh, was it his first book that, uh, that he owned or first book, that the oldest book that he yeah, had? Yeah, the first book that we know that he owned. The Sufficiency of a Standing Revelation in General and of the Scriptural Revelation in Particular, both as to the matter of it and as to the proof of it, and that new revelations cannot reasonably be desired and would probably be unsuccessful. Pretty snappy title. <laughs> Oh, you left out the best part, and that's the name of the author, the Reverend Dr. Offspring Blackle. <laughs> What's in that book? Did you read that book? Yeah. Um, it's a collection of sermons, and it's, it basically uh, talks about the, um, the idea of, of revealed religion. I mean, how do we know uh, that uh, God is out there? And, and it, well, he reveals it uh, to us. I mean, that's, that's the, how the argument goes. Now, those... Uh, that book was part of the Boyle Lectures, which was a series of lectures that was endowed by uh, the, the uh, preacher and chemist Robert Boyle. And you know, the, the whole purpose of the series was, was to prove you know, uh, Christianity and, and, and to give, give support to that in this era of the Enlightenment when, when deism and, and, and science was, was making more inroads and people were starting to question uh, their faith. Could you get insights into Washington's religious beliefs from the books? Um, well, with that one, I mean, I th it's my theory now. I can't prove this, but I mean, if you look at that book, and that's another one that survives in Boston, and there's two or three other names that are inscribed on the title page, and so it was owned by someone uh, before him. One of the guys was only like two years older than Washington, and Washington got this book when he was about 10 years old, so I'm thinking that he was not reading <laughs> <laughs> these religious sermons when he was 10 years old, and so I think his, his friend just kind of conned him and, and sold him this book. Now, uh, what's interesting to me, though, is that Washington didn't just not read it. I think that he looked at it and, and realized, well, <laughs> this is over my head, uh, but he didn't just uh, trade it off to another friend, like, uh, uh, but he put it on a shelf and just saved it until he was old enough to read it, and again, you look at this book, and there's, this is another one that it was very badly printed, and so there's a lot of typos in it, and Washington corrected them. And so at some point in his life, he, he maybe he didn't read it when he was 10, but when he, when he was 12 or 15, he, he went back to it and, and did read it. So he kept that book through mm -hmm. his entire life? Mm -hmm. And um, one of the, another piece of evidence is when Washington was still, during the Revolutionary War, he wrote back to uh, Lund Washington, his kinsman who was managing Mount Vernon, and he asked Lund to... Um, inventory all the books at Mount Vernon. And so Lund made this list, and Lund Washington had never written a bibliography before, or a library catalog, and he wasn't very good at it. But at the end of Lund's list, he says, and a bunch of other religious books. Uh, <laughs> and that was uh, uh, this uh, Dr. Offspring Blackwell's sermons was one of those other religious books. And it was important enough for Washington to keep it, uh, but uh, Lund didn't think it was very important. And so I think that you know, something else that's important to realize about books in early America and, and books today, really, is that they have 
um, symbolic value. It's not just a repository for uh, for texts, but it's also you know it it's, it's it says something about a person in in, uh, in their home. When you go to somebody's uh, house for the first time, what do you do? Uh, well, you look at their book. Well, that's what I do. <laughs> Isn't that what? Doesn't everyone do that? Uh, but I mean, that's something that, that interests me when I, when I uh, go to a person's house is to see what, the, what kind of books they have on their shelves. And, and I think that Washington understood this as well. And even from when he was a little kid that he recognized that books are uh, symbols of refinement, symbols of, of class. And so, you know, I think that all, it's important to understand books not just as for the text that they contain, but as symbolic objects as well. Were books expensive then? I mean, were they just for the elite? They were pretty expensive, uh, like I said, when you had to order them from London, uh, that, that ain't cheap. <laughs> were there bookstores? Could you um, walk down the street and go in a bookstore and yeah, now, take one off the uh, shelf? Yeah, now in Colonial Williamsburg there were uh, bookstores and, and they did their biggest business during the uh, time when the uh, House of Burgesses was in session. And, and so, and these were the same times that the courts were in session, and so lots of people came to Williamsburg. And so you could buy books there at the uh, Williamsburg book, bookstore, but for uh, most plantation owners and, and people who bought books in, in, William, in Colonial Virginia, they ordered them through their London agents. Well, I ask you, you write, uh, Seneca's morals has been widely acknowledged for shaping how Washington understood the relationship between virtue and happiness. Who was Seneca? And what was in the book? Well, Seneca, uh, it was a ethical treatise published in ancient Roman times. And uh, one of the things that's interesting about that is that I talk about the Seneca book in the same chapter, in my opening chapter, where I talk about other religious books. And so even though Seneca is writing in the time, uh, in pre-Christian times, he's still writing many of the same kinds of things that, that the, the Christian writers of Washington's time were writing about. Uh, how to live a good life, how to, how to live a proper life. And uh, I think that the reason why I discuss Seneca's morals in the same chapter as some of the other devotional manuals that Washington owns is because there's a consistency to them. And I think Washington himself recognized that. How to, uh, how to live a good Christian life and how to live a good life are not too different after all. Well, uh, Washington kept a diary? Yes. What's it read like? It's boring really <laughs> he, he really in his diary he did not uh, reveal much of the inner man and you know when I first started reading the diary I was I was kind of hoping that I would see more of uh, you know just references to books that he read or uh, but there's there's very little of that and probably my favorite reference now some of his diaries he kept in his uh, yearly almanacs now it was commonplace at that time to buy your almanac with that was interleaved, which meant that the, the bookbinder would put a blank piece of paper between every other leaves in the almanac and so that you could take notes. And Jefferson did this uh, same thing too. Uh, and so that's where some of Washington's diaries are, are just, in the published version, they're just transcriptions of what he wrote on the blank pages in his, uh, in his diaries. And probably my favorite episode is when uh, he, he mentions uh, Markham's fer ferriery. And so this was a uh, horse manual. And Washington had a, one of his favorite horses broke its leg. And you know, 
most people thought that breaking, you know, a horse breaks his leg, that's a death sentence for the horse. And Washington Howe, he just broke his heart to try and have to kill the horse because it had a broken leg. And so he looked in, he had just bought a, a brand new farrier manual that didn't have anything about uh, fixing the horse's leg. It was just, you shoot the horse, that's how what you do. But this old book that he had uh, said, oh no, here's how you, here's what you have to do. And it gave a, a big lengthy description of how you can set the horse, horse's leg and, and preserve it and, and get the horse uh, up and going again. And so Washington tried this and it was a very complicated thing. And, and if you just think about it, I mean, you have to uh, raise the horse in a kind of a sling and then you set its leg uh, and then you wrap it up. Uh, and then you have to, the horse has to be in a sling for like 40 days. And <laughs> well, he was hoping it was gonna work, but it just, the horse struggled and, and well, within about two days it, it fell out of the sling. And, and so he had to destroy the horse. And so it's a kind of sad story, but it's, um, it's an indication that Washington was uh, very much using his books. I mean, he followed that recipe as closely as he could, and he really did try to save that horse. A lot of books about farming? Washington had the greatest agricultural library in, uh, in colonial America. Books like what? Um, well, he had books on pretty much every different uh, phase of uh, farming. Now, he was a great experimenter in farming, and so he had books of the, the latest books about um, the use of fertilizers and the use of chemicals uh, to, to improve the fertilization process. And you know, in the 18th century enlightenment, people were experimenting with all different kinds of things. And you know, he, was, he was up on it. He was a great experimenter on his farm and, and he, he kept up with all the latest literature to, to follow the, the new experiments. Could you tell if he read for pleasure? Like did he read fiction or was it all kind of learning? Um, most of his books were, were practical in nature. Now, he, I think he did read for pleasure, but he was not a big um, novel reader. He had a few novels like um, Lawrence Stern's Tristram Shandy he had and uh, Fielding's Tom Jones, the, really the, the greatest hits of the 18th century. And, uh, Don Quixote he had, uh, but, but not very many novels. I think that in terms of pleasure reading, his greatest pleasures were travel reading and histories. And they were, I mean, they were kind of like novels because, I mean, they told a story, uh, but yet they were true, and so you could learn something from it. I mean, it was very much a part of the literary culture at this time period that a, a work of literature uh, had to do more than just be pleasurable. Uh, th this whole notion of pleasure reading is largely a modern concept. Um, but the, the key phrase uh, is one that goes back to, to Horace, back to ancient Roman times, to delight and instruct. And so a book had to do both. A good book had to do both. And so uh, when Washington was reading history and when he was reading travels, uh, he could read books that were pleasurable to read, but yet taught him about other, other lands and other time periods and, and other cultures. And so they were both, uh, they delighted and they instructed. You had mentioned Daniel Defoe's travel books. Mm -hmm. And Daniel Defoe who wrote... Um, Robinson Crusoe. Robinson Crusoe. Um, and you said you presented a paper at a Daniel Defoe conference mm -hmm. on George Washington. First of all, there's a Daniel Defoe conference. <laughs> yeah, there, uh, pretty much in, in among us English professors. I mean, there there are organizations for every major author in, in English and, and uh, American literature. So there's the Melville Society, and there's the Edgar Allan Poe Society, and there's a Daniel Defoe Society, and it has a conference every two years, and. Uh, it just so happened that after I got back from my month in Boston at the Boston Athenaeum, um, there was a Daniel uh, Defoe Society meeting uh, 
just 100 miles from my house. And so I wrote to the conference organizer and said, I got this great idea about how George Washington read Daniel Defoe. And he, he really liked the idea. And so he invited me to give a paper at the conference. Did he read uh, Pilgrim's Progress? Was there a copy of that in his library? No. Is I mean, it's not saying he, has, he didn't read it, but to, to my knowledge, he didn't. Because that was one of those things that was sort of widely mm -hmm. read at the time. Uh, George Washington was also a, a best-selling author, according to your book, for his journal on his trip to western Pennsylvania. Um, well, I don't know how, how much of a bestseller. It was, I mean, I, I think he was a, a best-selling author for his farewell address. Uh, that was probably his bestseller. But his journal was, became a popular uh, work of literature as well. Uh, it was um, reprinted in England, and then it was reprinted in many newspapers, excerpted it, and some newspapers reprinted the whole thing. And I think it's really one of the uh, neglected classics of early American travel literature. I, I think it's just delightful uh, writing. What does it read like? Um, it's, it's the journal that he kept when he uh, traveled uh, from Williamsburg up to the, the French camps, uh, you know, traveled through Pennsylvania and up to onto Lake Erie. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's his day-by-day -day journal, and he, it's not revised very much uh, from, uh, from then, but I think it's really, uh, it makes for exciting reading. You say in here, uh, the journal of Major George Washington, and he was 22, 23 mm -hmm. years old at the time, captured the public imagination. Newspapers up and down the East Coast republished it serially. American editors and British publishers recognized the work as a crucial document in the emerging conflict between Great Britain and France. How is that not better known today? <laughs> well, uh, hopefully it will be after my <laughs> people read my book. Because I think, like I said, I think it's one of the lost classics of early American travel writing. And when I, when I was in graduate school and I took uh, a couple of courses in early American uh, literature, and, and um, my teacher, Leo LeMay, really turned us on to all these different uh, literary works. I mean, my attitude toward early American literature before graduate school was, oh, it's just all Puritan sermons. I mean, that's, that was my preconception. But uh, Professor LeMay just uh, taught us that, oh, there's all these wonderful poems and, and uh, uh, body travel uh, narratives out there that have, have never been studied. And even one by someone as famous as George Washington has never really been studied very much as literature. I mean, the, the articles that have been written about it have analyzed it as, as a kind of historical document, but never have given it a literary appreciation. Is it enjoyable reading, or is it kind of dry like his? No, I, thought, I think it's very enjoyable reading. I mean, uh, you've got, you've got uh, wilderness, you've got Indians, you, you, <laughs> you've got, got canoe trip. I mean, it's, uh, it's an exciting adventure. I mean, it's a story of tra trailblazing through the American wilderness in the 1750s. And so I think it makes for an uh, exciting read. And it's even got uh, one of my uh, favorite parts is, is the uh, river crossing. And, the, and he, uh, George Washington, and Christopher Gist was who was the uh, uh, explorer he was traveling with. And they had to, to cross the river, but in, it was ice, ice it was covered with or big chunks of ice were, were uh, uh, floating down it. And so they had to try and cross this. And it was a very dangerous thing. And I mentioned in my book that I compare it with uh, the river crossing in Uncle Tom's Cabin. And, and the river crossing in, uh, uh, there's a D.W. Griffith a silent film with Lillian Gish, where she has to cross the river in the middle of winter. And I think Washington. Uh, recognized the, the dramatic possibilities of the of the river with the wintertime river crossing with big chunks of ice in it, just the way that that uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe and, and D. W. Griffith recognized after him. Now, not everyone appreciates that. One of the uh, 
outside readers for Oxford University Press uh, told me to take that part out, but I was, I was keeping it in there. I'm not taking that part out. I really liked it. <laughs> if somebody wants to read that book, where do they find it? Uh, it's in uh, some of the collected one-volume editions of George Washington's writings that's in there. Um, you also say the Journal of Major George Washington demonstrates how its author used his writing ability to present readers with a carefully crafted version of himself. He was very image conscious that early in his life? I think so. Uh, now, one of the other pieces of information that allows me to make a statement like that is that the guy he was traveling with, Christopher Gist, uh, also kept a diary. And um, Gist's diary, I mean, it coincides with Washington's in some things, but it's, it's different from Washington's in, in others. Now, one place where um, there's a point where the French, the French uh, were going to accompany them uh, for part of the way during the canoe trip uh, on the way back uh, toward uh, Virginia. And, you know, the French brought a bunch of rum and stuff with them. <laughs> and you know, one, one time the French canoe overset and it spilled all their rum and, and so the French got mad and it just uh, makes fun of that and, uh, and laughs at the French for, uh, and Washington is totally silent about that. And so Washington is not, in the pages of his journal, uh, going to make fun of the French or, or laugh at them. Uh, and, and so it, it really shows a different perspective between Washington and Gist. Uh, now there's another thing that Gist says in his, uh, in his diary that he's wondering about Washington. This, this gentleman is, is going to, how can he travel this, uh, this far in these rugged conditions? He'll never make it. But Washington never complains in his journal. He just, just uh, put on his, his coat and, and backpack and, and just traveled through the snow with just uh, going step for step and never falling behind or complaining or anything. You also write that French military commanders recognized that Washington's journal contained useful information about their Anglo-American enemy. They sent manuscripts to Montreal where translators prepared at least two different French versions of the journal and scriveners made multiple copies to distribute to other colonial officials. So it was pretty widely read. Mm -hmm. Did Washington never followed it up with a a sequel? I mean, he never caught the writing bug? <laughs> no. Well, I mean, Washington, um, he wrote quite a lot in his life, but uh, he was a reluctant, uh, re reluctantly wrote for publication. I mean, this journal, I mean, it was written as, you know, his travel journal, and it was, he, he knew other people were going to read it because he had to present it to the governor of Virginia, Governor Dinwiddie. But as soon as Governor Dinwiddie read it, he said, well, we got to get this published because it's going to be interested. More people are going to want this. You know, we're going to need to get copies to, you know, the Virginia Council. We need to send copies back to uh, London. And, and so he gave Washington a couple days to revise it, and Washington revised it. Uh, but Washington was a reluctant writer, a writer for publication. Uh, but, you know, if you look at the collected writings of George Washington, I mean, they filled dozens of volumes. I mean, he was a prolific letter writer and, and a very good letter writer, too. Uh, and I think that that's probably some of his best writing is, are his, the letters he wrote. You said that uh, his letters to Congress during the Revolutionary War were published. Mm -hmm. What are they like? Do you get a, any insight to, into what he was going through dealing with them? They were, um, th there, there's comments about people who read them at the time. Now, one of the letters he sent, now this was after uh, the the siege of Boston when, when uh, they, uh, colonial forces drove the uh, 
British soldiers out of Boston, and Washington described that to Landon Carter, a friend of his in Virginia, and, and Carter just thought, oh man, this is, this is just the greatest uh, letter ever. I mean, he just complimenting Washington's writing style because it was so concise and, and so exciting, but yet so understated. And so there, there are all these, these contemporary comments about uh, the um, quality of Washington's letter writing. And then when, when some of his letters were published, they were uh, reviewed in the journals in England, and even uh, Washington's old enemies had to admit that, oh, he's a, he's a good letter writer. <laughs> How many of these books did you read to put this book together? Um, probably about 50 or 60. How do they read? Do they hold up, or are some of them deathly dull? Well, I wouldn't want to have to read Dr. Offspring Blackle's sermons again. <laughs> That's for sure. Oh, you did read that. But, but the, uh, the travel, travel writing is, uh, I think, holds up really well. I, I think it's, uh, it's still fun to read today. And um, some of the histories, some, some of his, the histories are, are, are more dated, but I like some of the histories of the time period as well. How did George Washington learn to be a soldier? Well, he got his first knowledge from his uh, older brother, who was, uh, who was a professional soldier. And, uh, but then his, his brother died young, and so he didn't really learn, have an opportunity to learn very much from him. And so a lot of that came from his, uh, his reading. When we, to go back to the, uh, George Washington's journal, one of the things that he does in that journal is that uh, you know, when he reached the French fort, they, the French just let him alone for a couple hours, and he took advantage of it. He, he paced off all the all the measurements, counted how many canoes and how many bateaux they had, how many uh, uh, vessels, how many horses. Uh, he he made this detailed inventory of, of all the different uh, forces that they had. Um, and I thought to myself, well, how how did he learn? Where did he learn how to do that? Uh, and because he hadn't had any formal military training. And, and I thought, well, maybe he got it from a book, but he didn't. If you look at the military books that he acquired, he really only bought military books when he was, when he was fighting or when he was getting ready to, to fight. So before the French and Indian War, he bought some, and then before the Revolutionary War, he bought a, a bunch, and then during the Revolutionary War, he acquired a bunch more. But at that time, the time of the journal, he really, the only thing I could think of is that he, he read Caesar's commentaries. Hmm. I think that's where he got it from. Caesar's Commentaries is a, is a brilliant book, but it's also, uh, it can be read as a practical manual. I mean, you know, it's a history, history and biography, but it, it also, there's a lot of practical information, practical information about the kind of stuff that Washington was recording, like <laughs> size up your enemy, uh, determine the strength of their forces, and Caesar says things like that. You also uh, write about a book by someone named Turpin on the art of war. Mm -hmm. What was that about? Um, one of the things that I didn't realize before I started uh, looking at what military books George Washington had and, and how he read them were uh, you know, what kinds of, what was the content of them? Is there any consistencies among the military books? And one thing that I noticed with Turpin and with some of the other military books that he had is he had a lot of uh, books about uh, la petite guerre or the, the little war. In other words, how, you know, a, a, an under funded, understaffed uh, army can, can still have a superior force by going out and um, 
starting these little fights, little skirmishes, and, and then you go out and, and you have a little skirmish and you defeat your enemy and then you retreat uh, real quick before your enemy can gather their forces up. And this is something that the Continental Army was very good at, and it's something that Washington um, didn't know much about it before the war, but learned a lot uh, about it. And uh, that's one of the consistencies I see among all of his military books is, is he learned a lot more about uh, fighting these uh, little little skirmishes, these little wars. Did he ever write anything memorable about Jumonville Glen or the Braddock expedition? Well, that's another uh, journal that he kept. Uh, and that's one that they, the French uh, seized uh, his journal and it was published in French first, uh, but published by a, a propagandist in, in French and who Washington's original diary doesn't survive, and so really that, that uh, French version is, is the closest we have to his original. Now there's the indication that the French translator was fairly accurate in his translation, but he kind of undermined Washington's journal by putting all these sarcastic footnotes to it. Oh, look at this dumb Washington. Look what he's doing here. <laughs> um, but that's, um, he didn't write anything afterwards about that, or not very much. I mean, I think it was, um, a very disturbing time in his military career. Um, and so there's, other than that journal, there's not much that he wrote about it. But he was pretty well known when he was very young, 22, mm -hmm. 23 years yeah. old. Was there some indication in his book collection about when he started showing an interest in the revolution? I mean, did he read John Locke? His, um, there's there's not much of an indication that he he read the philosophical background of of the revolution, you know, like Adams and, and Jefferson and, and Madison did. Uh, so, so, to my knowledge, there's, there's not much of that. And even one of the, the formative um, books, there was a French writer named Vertot, and he wrote a series of books uh, called, you know, like the revolutions in, in Sweden and the revolutions, in, you know, the revolutions from different parts of, of the world. And now Washington had one of these uh, Vertot's revolutions in his library because it came from books that his wife's um, first husband had had in his library. But there's no indication that Washington read any of Berthold's revolutions until after the Revolutionary War, which is it's very revealing, actually, to see that you know, these were works that very much shaped other founding fathers. But Washington, although he had one in his library, there's no indication that he read it before the Revolution. But after the Revolution, he, he read a couple of them. And it's almost Washington playing catch-up or, or Really, I mean, I mean that, uh, that sounds derogatory. I didn't mean it to, to sound that way. But Washington, recognizing that what he and, and the Revolutionary Army and the Americans did was something very significant in terms of world history and starting to wonder how his actions and Americans' actions fit into the history of the world. In reading his diary, do you get any indication when he starts to tilt toward the revolution, being in favor of it? Not in his diary. He doesn't re reveal that much about it. I mean, it's, it's, the diary is, is much more uh, practical information about how the, the farm and, and, and things like that. Uh, now, one of the things I, comments I make about uh, his reading of Defoe's um, tour through Great Britain is that, I mean, that book was very attractive to Washington. And when you read Defoe's book, and you can tell that Great Britain had a lot 
that uh, about it about the country that Washington really liked and that he could identify with. And so when he decided to rebel against Great Britain, I mean that was a tough decision, and that was something that he was rebelling against uh, a lot that 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 he liked. Uh, and, and so I see little indications like that, but but nothing uh, major in, in his personal writings. You mentioned that you are a you're a retired uh, literature professor. Mm -hmm. What drew you to that field? Well, uh, when I went to the graduate school at the University of Delaware, I mentioned my teacher, uh, Leo LeMay. Now, he was uh, uh, the world's leading expert in early American literature. And one of the things that appealed to me about the time period is that there's so much of the literature that uh, remains unexplored. I mean, we, we talked earlier about the George Washington. No, one, no literary scholar has ever really written a critical appreciation of Washington's journal until I, I devoted a chapter to it in this book. Um, and so there's, there's just a ton of opportunities for scholars to uh, interpret literature and, and to uh, publish literature, to edit literature. Uh, there was one of uh, a book that was in the Maryland Historical Society called The History of the Tuesday Club. And this is this wonderful, uproarious, hilarious uh, mock history and it had been sitting in the Maryland Historical Society for, for centuries until someone, uh, in fact, one of uh, Professor LeMay's other former students edited it for publication. And so those are the kinds of opportunities that I saw in early American literature that were less so with other literary figures who have been studied in, in much more detail already. What, is, uh, what books were popular then? I mean, what, if you've had a bestseller list from the 1770s, what would have been on it? Okay, now let me let's take a little thought for that one. <laughs> uh, because, like I said, that there were some, I mean, there were some, no, there were some great novels published in uh, the 18th century, but those weren't uh, really, uh, not many of them were bestsellers. Uh, now, we, we mentioned Robinson Crusoe earlier. Now, that one was. I mean, everybody read Robinson Crusoe. Washington read Robinson Crusoe. And so that was on uh, bestsellers. And Gulliver's Travels, too, I think there's another one that fits in w with that. And that's uh, another one that Washington read. Um, but novels were less uh, big sellers than, than the devotional manuals. Uh, those, those were more popular. There was one that George Washington's mother had. It was, uh, I'm going to draw a blank now. Um, well, there, another one, well, this, his mother didn't have this, but another one Washington read was Thompson's The Seasons. Now, this was a, a long philosophical poem. And, and that's when I tried to read and <laughs> couldn't get through it. <laughs> uh, I mean, this was, it was hugely popular in, in the 18th century. And you read it nowadays, you think, what, what did they see in this? I mean, it's so long. I mean, a 300-page philosophical poem. Um, but for some reason, this, this caught the popular imagination. Benjamin Franklin read it, and he wrote to a correspondent, oh, I just love Thompson's uh, The Seasons, he said. I hadn't written, uh, read any poetry for, for many years, but as soon as I read this, it brought tears to my eyes. And, thinking, why? <laughs> it was hard to understand. So tastes were very different uh, back then. But um, they didn't have TV, though, either. <laughs> was Washington a Bible reader? Not, not so much a, a Bible reader. Uh, if you look at his writings, I, don't, I didn't see very many biblical references, uh, not nearly as many as, say, Benjamin Franklin. Now, Benjamin Franklin's 
lots of biblical references. A lot of them are ironic or, or, or satirical. But um, you know, Franklin knew his Bible. I don't. Uh, I mean, I, I suspect he he read it, and, and there's evidence that his when he was a child, his mother read him the Bible. Um, but there's really not that much evidence of it in his uh, writings. When he uh, when the war was over and he went back to Virginia, did he keep on paying attention to the news? Yeah, he subscribed to several newspapers uh, back in Virginia. He also mentioned a magazine, um, Gentleman's Magazine. Mm -hmm. What was that? What was a magazine like back then? Well, the, when he was a kid, uh, uh, his father subscribed to the Gentleman's Magazine. So there were copies in uh, Washington home from, when, from Washington's youth. But it was really, that was the beginnings of the history of magazines. And they were... Uh, very eclectic writings. I mean, there might be an uh, you know, essay about the population in there, and then there would be a, uh, some poems in there, and then there would be a, you know, a travel narrative in, in there. And so it was very eclectic uh, in terms of their uh, overall contents of the magazines. And after the war, he joined a group called the Society of Cincinnati, and you said that was controversial. Well, it was very controversial because, I mean, the whole point, one of the main uh, points of, of the revolution was to to get rid of any notions of aristocracy. And when the former officers of the revolution banded together to form the Society of Cincinnati, uh, they said that, okay, this is gonna be a, an inherited society. So the, uh, the membership will go to the, uh, the oldest son of the current member. And Washington was really questioning the, the wisdom of that because it, it was against the, the principles on which the American Revolution were founded. Now he, Washington was much more diplomatic than Jefferson was. Jefferson was just totally up in arms about this. Uh, but, and so Washington consulted Jefferson, and Washington really wanted to, um, he was going to threaten to disband the society before it really even got going. Uh, but through circumstances, because then they invited the French officers to come and, and join. And so by the time that Washington could even give us, he was invited to be, give a speech at the first national meeting of the society in Cincinnati. And the French had already found out about it and had already formed the French chapter of the Society of the Cincinnati. And so Washington couldn't just disband the society without offending his, you know, the French who had been so instrumental in, in the success of the revolution. And so he worked out, okay, we're going to try and work out a compromise and so that we can keep this uh, society going. And, and it took a long time, but it, but it worked in the society's a, a thriving organization today. Did Washington ever write about the Revolutionary War? No, um, people encouraged him to. Uh, one of the guests at, at Mount Vernon um, was a, a British merchant who was very, very well read in history, and, and uh, he watched it. Asked "Well, um, who, who should write this history of the revolution?" And, and uh, his guest said, "Well, I only know one person who could write the history of the revolution." And, and Washington says, "Oh, who is that?" And the guy said, "Well." You know, Caesar wrote his commentaries, you know, implying <laughs> that Washington should be the one. And Washington said, oh, no, <laughs> I, I, you know, I've, I've seen too many horrors of war to, to write it. So he's very honest about that. But he, I mean, he was very interested in how the war would be represented in history. And he encouraged historians, uh, people who came to him and asked him for uh, advice or asked him for documents and, and correspondence to look at. He was willing to share those, but he wasn't going to write it himself. Now, if you had visited George Washington in Philadelphia when he was president, and you, like you do, you had looked along his bookshelves. What would he have taken to, had with him in Philadelphia as president? 
Well, I don't know that he brought many books with him. Uh, now, there's, uh, of course, when he was when he was first president, it was in New York, not not Philadelphia. Now, there, when I was during the time I was writing my book was a time when you know there was a sensational news story in, in the New York papers about Washington had borrowed two books from the New York Historical Society and never returned them, and now he owned he owed three hundred thousand dollars worth of fines <laughs> uh, if you figure it out till the present day, and. Uh, and so if we look at those, those two books that he borrowed, one was uh, a book about um, the British government proceedings in, in, in Parliament during the war. And so that's an indication that he was interested in reading more about uh, the, the British background of the war. And another one was a, a book on natural law. Now this is something that uh, the, the ideas of natural law were very instrumental in, in the uh, ideas underlying the American Revolution. So it's another indication that um, Washington was interested, or was was becoming more interested in the philosophical underpinnings of of America, of the United States at that time period. Now, I think that Hamilton recommended it uh, to him. Um, I suspect Washington didn't never finished reading either one of those because he never he never returned them. When he was done his presidency and went back to Mount Vernon, did he did he take up reading again, or reading for pleasure, or or? Um did he follow the news? What kind of reading did he do? Well, there's one a letter that Washington wrote <clears throat> that says that, well, I plan to uh, read a bunch after I retired from the presidency, but uh, I just haven't had time because I, the farm is taking so much work, which is understandable. I mean, he, he had neglected the farm for so many years during, uh, during the war and, and uh, like that. But um, at the end of different time periods. The, his biggest book buying sprees came, first of all, at the end of the Revolutionary War. He bought a ton of books at the end of the war, just before coming back to Mount Vernon. And then uh, when he was in Philadelphia for the Constitutional uh, Convention, right at the end of the Constitutional Convention, he bought a bunch of books. And then he bought more books at the end of his presidency. And so, you know, at, at during those three times of uh, anticipating retirement, he uh, expected to read a lot more after uh, after he got home. I have to ask you about this one. You say, in the 20th century, George Saintsbury would remark, it may be doubted whether anybody really understands the 18th century as it was and as it might have been until he has read John Bunkle. What is John <laughs> Bunkle? John Bunkle is actually one of my um, favorite books that survives from Washington's uh, library. Now, it's a novel. It was one of the few novels that he bought and it's a it's similar to other novels. It's it's like Don Quixote. It's a kind of a picaresque novel of adventures. Um, but what interests me about uh, that book is not the contents of it, but George Washington's copy of it, which is another book that survives at the Boston Athenaeum, because it's a two-volume novel, and the bookbinder misbound it. And so, uh, you know, if you, he's got part the first part of volume one. In, in the first volume, and then it skips to the second part of volume two, and then <laughs> the first part of volume two and the second part of volume one. And so it's all messed up. Uh, well, what did Washington do? I mean, he could have sent it back to his bookbinder in Philadelphia and said, oh, this is screwed up, redo this. Uh, and that's what a lot of people would have done, I suppose. But Washington was a good engineer, and so he found a way to engineer around it. And if you look at the copy, when, when the mistake begins, it, Washington says, okay, now here is the, where the binding error begins. So what I want you to do is to go from this page to volume two and page 270 and then start reading from there. And it's then, written in the book like that? Yeah, in, in Washington's handwriting. 
Uh, and then when you get to the end of that section, now go back to volume one and start reading from page. <laughs> and so, I mean, it's very revealing. One is that uh, Washington, when he, when he encountered a problem, he, he saw a way to, to engineer around it, <laughs> to, to fix that problem. Uh, and again, this is another, it's like the typos he corrected. It's a, it's a mistake of a bigger proportion than correcting a typo, but it's a similar uh, impulse to, to see an error in a book and then correct it. Uh, but something else that is indicated in, in his note is he said, now, whoever reads this book, whether you know, he or she who reads it, and he, he uses that double pronoun, he or she, and so it's an indication that Washington was not just buying these books to read himself, that he was sharing them with others, and also, too, that maybe he anticipated a time in the future when another generation would be reading this book as well. Um, you uh, mentioned his step-grandson and how he was emphatic about education on that. Mm -hmm. Was that kind of an overcompensation thing? Well, uh, I mentioned earlier that Washington never got the uh, classical education that his two older brothers got, and he always regretted this. And so when, uh, uh, well, bo bo with both his, his step-son and his step-grandson, uh, he wanted to give them a, a proper education and neither of them appreciated it and neither of them wanted a <laughs> classical education like George Washington had hoped for them. When did people start writing about George Washington? Well, there's a, a few bi uh, brief biographies, biographical essays that were written in his lifetime. And now those, uh, to me, those are most interesting because in, there may be some personal knowledge that, that indicates. And so when, when people who, are, um, who knew Washington personally are saying things about his education and about his reading, then that's, to me, that has more credence or uh, more weight than uh, others who didn't know him personally. Now, his um, aide-de-camp, David Humphreys, uh, started writing a biography of George Washington during Washington's lifetime. And he lived at Mount Vernon for a long time. And so uh, he never finished it. His unfinished biography has been published uh, and edited and published. And it's uh, got a lot of good stuff in there. Uh, and so that's, that's a good source. But really, if it's you know, in Washington's lifetime, people started writing about it. And Who was Parson Weems? Parson Weems is a, a popular author uh, who uh, came up with the George Washington Cherry Street story. Uh, that's where he's the one who invented that story. And, and many other Washington legends that have become part of the popular culture. But that was a huge bestseller. And Parson Weems, uh, he was also an itinerant bookseller. He would travel around the country selling his books. And, and that, that, as we all know, that caught on. And, and everyone knows the story of the, of the cherry tree, uh, regardless of <laughs> whether it's true or not. Does that make entertaining reading these days? I think it's still fun to read. I think that Parson Weems was a good writer. Is John Bunkle worth reading? Uh, no. No, <laughs> it's too long. I mean, <laughs> maybe if the uh, Reader's Digest version of it uh, might be okay, but it's, it's really long. Well, if people are watching this and they're curious about the books George Washington read, can you, what are some of your favorites that you came away from this with? Hmm. Well, I mentioned uh, Defoe's Travels Through Great Britain already. Uh, that was the first one that comes to my mind. Also, Gulliver's Travels is another one that I would mention. Uh, so many of them are, are the, I mentioned the, the practical handbooks, the, the, the agricultural textbooks, and those are um, 
maybe interesting to, to dip into, but that's not something that if you wanted to try and, I mean, because it, it would be really fun to just uh, make an anthology of Washington, uh, books from, you know, excerpts from uh, books from Washington's uh, library. I think that that would be really a fun project. Uh, so that you could almost try and read like George Washington read. And so I would include some of the histories that I mentioned. Uh, I would include um, some of the travel literature that uh, was in Washington's library as well. I mean, there's also you know, all-time favorites like Aesop's uh, Fables. Uh, he, he read that too when he was, uh, uh, when he was young. Um, the Spectator Essays is another one that he, he read and, and liked very much. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, great, great works from the 18th century that Washington read. What happened to his library when he died? Well, he, um, since the Washingtons didn't have any children themselves, they, uh, the bulk of the library went to uh, his nephew, Bushrod Washington, and then some other uh, nephews got some, some other books. And so it was not held together as, as a whole. Now, the, um, the biggest collection was held at uh, Mount Vernon, but then another nephew uh, got many of the books, and, and he put those in storage and, uh, in, a, in a house that he rented out. And <laughs> well, his tenants said, wow, wow, we got this nice Washington library. Nobody will miss, miss this uh, autograph. I just clip it off the title page. And, and, and so a lot of the books were, uh, were defaced, uh, and, and many of them uh, were dispersed. Now, there were several Washington book sales through the 19th century. And so um, the ones that didn't make it to Boston Athenaeum uh, went, uh, went up for auction and were really dispersed around the country. If you could talk to George Washington, what would you want to ask him about? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I think I'd ask him about uh, the other founding fathers. Um, what'd you, ask him about Thomas Jefferson. What did you think about Thomas Jefferson? Or what did you think about John Adams? And he Patrick never wrote Henry? any of that, that um, opinion? Not very much. It's in my... Uh, both my Washington biography and also my work on Benjamin Franklin and, and Thomas Jefferson and others, it's uh, frustrating sometimes that, that people just didn't leave uh, anecdotes. Now, now, Franklin's an exception. I mean, everyone left anecdotes about <laughs> Benjamin Franklin and anyone who didn't leave them made them up. Uh, <laughs> but, but Jefferson is another case. People would say things like, oh, Jefferson told the hilarious, uh, hilarious story tonight. It's like, well, <laughs> well, write it down. <laughs> Help me out. Uh, and, and people would say what a good storyteller was and how funny Jefferson was. And, and, but they wouldn't write these things down. And, and in Jefferson scholarship, anyways, there have been all these Jefferson biographers who said he had no sense of humor. And that's one of the things I tried to emphasize in, in my work on Jefferson, is that he did have a sense of humor. It's just that <laughs> nobody, nobody wrote his jokes down. <laughs> And, and so I think that that's something that really is, uh, has gotten lost. Is that, so uh, I, I want to hear some anecdotes. George Washington, tell me some anecdotes about all the other founding fathers. Well, that'll have to be the last word. We are out of time. We've been speaking with Kevin Hayes. He is the author of this book, George Washington, A Life in Books. Thank you very much. Thanks. Good to be here. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.